As Vicky said, my name is Ian. Uh, I work with uh, Tertiary Students Christian Fellowship. I work at Massey, basically sitting around talking with students all day, not doing much, don't have a real job. Uh, no, that is a real job. Uh, so I, I pretty much just spend my time reading the Bible with students, which is great. And today I'm going to open up uh, Luke 15 for us. So if you've got a Bible, open it up. And uh, we're going to look at the, the parable of the prodigal son. Now we all know this story, even if you've never been to church before. Uh, it's um, you know, a, such a well-known story that kind of, it, kind of it's, uh, everybody knows it. And if you have been ch- around churches long enough, it's probably the hundredth time that you've heard someone preach on it. Uh, so you know, will I really add anything new today? Probably not. Will we be able to go home and kind of think, you know, I've, I've understood everything there is about the Bible and about Jesus? Probably not, but, um, well, maybe. But I hope today that at least we're reminded of God's grace, uh, of to- his grace towards us. And what I want to do today is take a slightly different look at the passage and see what we can glean from it. Last time I preached on this passage, uh, someone got up and prayed afterwards and they prayed for the exact opposite thing to the thing that I've been speaking on. So I hope to do better today. But before we head into the parable, um, uh, I want us to, we, we need to see that it's actually a part of a group of parables. There's, there's three parables together and we need to understand them kind of as, as a group, that they go together. Uh, it's kind of a, the three uh, a, a, a parallel parables. Try saying that quickly while you're sermonating. Parallel parables. Not, not so easy. But if I were to say to you, an Englishman, a Kiwi and an Aussie walked into a bar, you know, what would I be doing? I'd be telling you a joke, wouldn't I? Uh, and who would the joke be on? It would be on the Aussie, obviously. Everyone thinks that's funny. It's always on Aussies, isn't it? The problem is the, it's the exact opposite thing when you go to Australia. No, Kiwis don't realise this. Exactly the opposite. Uh, but there's a pattern and a style to that, to that type of joke that, uh, that we like to tell. And it's always on the last person. The joke's always on the last person. But if I was to say to you, an Englishman, a Malaysian, a Kiwi, a Fijian, walked into, it, walked into a bar, you would realise there was something different about my joke. You know, the, the, the pattern that we're expecting has been broken and uh, there's something different that I'm going to say. I don't actually have any jokes to tell, so sorry if that's a bit disappointing. I couldn't think of any. Uh, but what I, what I want us to do today is have a look at these series of parables and see that there is a pattern established by Jesus. Uh, and then as we kind of read it, we'll see that some of the pattern is fulfilled and some of the pattern isn't. And it will alert us to a few things. So if you open up there, and, and let's start at the beginning, have a look at verse 1 of Luke 15. And I'll read it out. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So the context is really clear. I'm going to slowly kind of make make my way through the passage and I'll slowly read it all out. But the context is really clear for for all three parables. It's not hidden, it's right there at the start. And we know that these stories are going to address this issue of the Pharisees uh, and, and the teachers of the law and how they view the tax collectors and sinners. So the Pharisees uh, and teachers of the law, they, they think they're, they're right with God or tight with God, you could say. Uh, but the sinners, you know, they're not the so respectable people in society. You know, nowadays we probably call them politicians. But you know, the, the people that we you kind of want to stay away from, 
as much as you can. So verse 2, it tells us exactly what the Pharisees think about these people and why they have a problem with Jesus. You know, they, they don't like that Jesus is eating with them. It's not right for a religious person like, like Jesus to be associating with these people. So then, verse 3, we get into the, the first of the two parables. Let me read them out. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully points, puts it on, sorry, joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now what I want us to see in these two parables is that they set up a pattern, a pattern that, that we kind of come to expect from the third parable. Uh, and so what, what is the common between these two parables? Firstly, there is something lost. And the first one's a sheep and, and then a coin. Secondly, there's a search that takes place and so both of them search thoroughly. Uh, thirdly, uh, they, they, the thing is found and then... Uh, Kind of lastly, there is rejoicing and, and both of them end with this pro- proclamation. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who do not need to repent. Slightly shorter in the second one, but uh, the same idea. So it seems that Jesus is picking up on the idea of Luke 5.31. In Luke 5.31, Jesus says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So it seems like he's picking up on this idea and expanding it a little bit. It seems that he's saying that the Pharisees are okay with God and that he's only come to save and search out for those who need to repent. Well, let's look at the third parable and see if that's true. Jesus has set the pattern uh, and, and now let's continue to see if that pattern kind of keeps going on. So the pattern was that something was lost, there was a search... Uh, The thing was found, and then there's the celebration. So let me read uh, the third parable. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And... After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against you, sorry, sinned against heaven and against you. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against, you, against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of, his, one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So what do we see? We see firstly that something is lost. This young guy, he tries to de-son himself, tries to take himself out of the family. You know, he pretty much says, says to his dad, look dad, I, I love you but you know, I wish you were dead. And uh, So let's act as if you are, give me half the property and I'm off. Now, how good would that be if your kid said that to you? You, know, you would love it, wouldn't you? It'd be kind of a swift backhand and a, and a kick in the behind. Kind of go away is what I'd say. But the son's asking shows us something of how he views his relationship with his father. It shows that for him, his relationship with his father is one of obligation. It's a relationship of obligation. Give me what I'm owed. Uh, father, Dad, this is what you owe me. And in fact, even him saying that, it shows that he's not acting like a son, but he's acting like someone who is, is hired, a servant. This is what I'm being owed. This is what you owe me for being a son. Give it to me. And it's the exact opposite of what being a son or daughter is about, really. You know, there is no obligation in being, being a child. You don't get to choose uh, who your parents are, uh, and you can't stop being a child in, of, of your parents in any way. You just are. Being a son or a daughter really is a perfect reflection of what it means to be under grace. You can't buy your way in and you, and you can't make your way out. Being a child is a relationship of grace. Now I'm sure some of you here today have had horrible parents, but the fact that a parent isn't very good doesn't stop them from being a parent. No matter how much we would want them, want that to happen, it just can't. Now we're not told what type of dad this guy was. Um, and we're, all we're told is that he just divides the property and, and the son goes off. And the father's reaction is interesting, isn't it? Well, really the, the lack of reaction. There's just no reaction. 
but it's a parable and so we're not given all of the details. And verse 13, that the son packs up his things and, and off he goes. What does he do? He squanders his wealth in verse 14 in wild living. Again, it's an interesting lack of detail and it's only right until the end where the older brother tells us that uh, he squandered some of his money on, on prostitutes. But we're not given really any detail at all. But I'm sure you can imagine the things that he got up to. Maybe you should stop imagining those things now. But what does he do? Uh, he does what every person in his situation would do when they've got no money. He gets a job. Last resort, you have to get a job. But it's just the worst possible job that you could think of. You know, he has to feed pigs. You know, if, and if you think that's a bad job, then in the context of it, for a Jewish person to feed pigs is kind of the worst possible thing that you could do. Touching or being around pigs makes them unclean. And obviously he's already unclean by his lifestyle, but it's just to emphasise the horrendous state that he's in. Now, I've owned some pigs. Some of them are still in the freezer, which is good. They didn't all fit in the freezer. There's a couple of heads in a friend's freezer, which kind of... Uh, they're not too happy about. But if you've ever owned pigs, you know how much of a, pa- uh, how much of a hassle they are. It's you know, six months of hassle and pain. It's kind of just constantly feeding these things and you just see all the money keep going out as, you, as you're feeding them. Ours were very friendly and uh, it meant that whenever they heard the door open, they kind of tried to get out of the pen and tried to, to get at you. So it felt like we were locked in the house all day and you kind of quickly open the garage door and get out again before they could get out. But uh, one even ended up in the house, which wasn't so good. Erin wasn't real happy about that. But when you go through the, the experience of owning pigs and you take them off to market, as they say, uh, and you start to enjoy some of the pork, your own pork, and you start to think, you know what, it wasn't that bad. Maybe we should do it again sometime. It's like having kids, without the, without the eating bit, of course. But, but the idea from this passage is that you know, pigs are just the, really the lowest of the low. His position is just horrendous. So much so that he desires, even longs for the food that the pigs, the food that the pigs are eating, the pods, probably carob pods. Uh, and now if you've ever fed a pig, you don't feed them high quality food because they just consume so much. You give them scraps and, and lots of it, as many scraps as you can find. And that's what the pods are, they're, they're scraps. So Carob pods, uh, they kind of come from a tree and you, they're, like a, they're, they're a pea and so you, you, you crack them open and you take the peas out and then you have the shell or the husk of the, of the pods left over and so that's what he was feeding them and he's longing to have these carob pods. So any, if anyone's eaten too much carob, you know that it's not the greatest thing in the world either. So you know, he's not in such a good situation but verse 17, he comes to his senses when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's high men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his son. Sorry, went to his father. You see here, quite a, he has quite a unique understanding of his relationship with his father now. He realises that his actions to, towards his father have gone pretty much as far as anyone could go to not be a son, to divorce himself from his family. He said, he said Dad, I'm going to treat you like you're dead and take my inheritance. 
That's why he says in verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like, your, like one of your hired men. He says, I don't deserve to come back under grace, the grace of sonship. Make uh, our relationship one of obligation because that's how I've treated you. That is what I deserve. One where I will work for you and you will give me what I deserve and no more. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you. Sorry, sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And the father's response in verse 24 here is very interesting. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father has it, has it right. Of course, it's Jesus speaking, so it's going to be right. But he says, This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He was dead. This son of mine was dead. See, the son's intention was to kill his father and to go away. But what does he do? Instead of the father being kind of killed, it is the son that ends up dying. In reality, it is the son that ends up dying. He was dead and now he is alive. By divorcing his family, instead of killing his father, which he hopes, he kills himself. And so he comes back and everyone's pretty happy, except for the other son who's going to get stiffed on his share of the inheritance. But you know, we've seen that so far, kind of one thing in the other two parables, what was lost and is now found, has kind of come true. Uh, but let's keep going and we kind of explore this a bit more and particularly explore the second son. What, what, what about the other elements? So there was also the search and also the rejoicing. So firstly, let's, let's think about the rejoicing. Here again we have rejoicing, uh, Luke 20, uh, chapter, verse 22. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard, his, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. It all sounds pretty fun. Quite an extravagant feast. Fattened calf is a kind of, you know, it means a huge celebration really. And it's in line with the other parables as well, that the celebration was quite big. But there's something missing from the feast. Verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, brother of yours was dead 
and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now the difference between this celebration and the celebration in the other parables is that in the other parables everybody was included. Or the friends come over or the neighbours come over but here we have someone on the outside and his position on the outside is significant. It shows that he refused to go in and was not a part of the celebration. Now obviously, obviously this is aimed at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They are the older brother. But it seems that they are so close yet they risk being left out of the celebration. See, what is the problem with the older brother? The problem with the, with the older brother is that he sees his relationship with his father as one of obligation as well. What does he say there in verse 29? Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. He hasn't served his father because he loves him. He served him out of obligation, out of what he was owed by his father. Now, if he had have loved his father in the way that he should have, then he would have also dropped everything and joined in the celebration at his brother's return. Now, ultimately, what I think this passage is saying is that if you live a life of obligation with God, you will either end up dropping off one of two sides. You'll either be like the younger son and you'll end up in sinful liberty or you'll end up being like the older son and you'll end up in legalism. We see there are things in verse 30 that the older, older son has become like the younger son because what does he say? This son of yours. He has taken himself out of the family as well. But as I said, I think you'll either end up in representing one of the two. You'll end, either end up in sinful liberty or end up in legalism. No, so sinful liberty, I just mean that you will think that you can go and sin as much as you like and no one can impinge on your freedom. Uh, Christians often call it antinomianism. It's kind of a big word. It's not really meant to confuse anyone. It just means anti, kind of against, and nomos means law, so against any laws or rules. You're, you're just free to do what you like. And... The way that it applies as a Christian is mean, it, it says that it doesn't matter what I do because under grace I can go sin it up uh, and it won't change my relationship with God. So it doesn't matter what I do, I can go do whatever I like because no matter what I do, under grace uh, my relationship will always be the same with God. Now I get to speak at various camps and do talks kind of around the place and I often like to speak on grace. I'm, I'm committed to uh, telling people about freedom in Christ. I think it's a, one of the most important uh, kind of implications of the gospel. But what I often do is, if I speak on a weekend camp, I like to stir people up on a Saturday night and leave them a bit uneasy and then kind of bring them clarity on a Sunday morning. kind of makes people go to bed a bit kind of uh, lightheaded. One thing I like to say, though, is... Um, that the reality of the Bible is that if you are a Christian, you could go and sin it up as much as you would like and that wouldn't change your standing before God. And I don't qualify, I just leave it there. Often I go on and say, you could go and murder someone tonight and it wouldn't change your standing before God. And often you see people's minds ticking over, 
kind of thinking about the implications of it and they start to look around and thinking, maybe I could you know, get away with this tonight. Then they realise, actually, everyone else is thinking the same thing and they kind of get a bit scared of what's going on. It's always good to um, then go play a scary game after that in the dark to see how people react. But in the morning, I, I, kind of, I then talk about the implications of being freed from sin and how sin doesn't affect our standing before God but affects our relationship with God. And so that's what uh, kind of sinful liberty or antinomianism does. It says, I'm free. I can do whatever I like. I can go sin it up and it, it just doesn't matter. But we know from Romans 6, if you've got time, look it up later. I love Romans 6. I think it's my uh, probably most favourite chapter in the New Testament. Uh, and Paul is faced with the same argument. And, he says, and so he says... What should we do then? Should we go on and sinning so that grace may increase or grace may abound? And he uses really a Greek word, or it's kind of two words, that it's almost swearing, as close to swearing as you can find in the Bible. It says meganoita, no way. It's, kind of, that's, it's so strong a term. No way. And why? He says because if you have died with Christ, then you are dead to sin. You, can't, you can no longer live to sin in your body because that was our old way of living and the new way of living is not sinful. And he says we have been freed from the presence, power and punishment of sin. From the presence, power and punishment of sin. And he goes to explain that all through Romans 6 and such a good chapter. And he kind of says, why would you want to go and live that way anymore? You know, sinful liberty, it doesn't lead to freedom. What it actually leads to is bondage. It leads to slavery to sin. It leads to slavery to self. Well, the way to tell if you're kind of, as a Christian, you're kind of happy to to live under uh, antinomianism or, as I said, sinful liberty, is to ask yourself a question. And uh, let me ask it of you. You if If God had said to you, I don't want you to ever have sex or ever have sex again, what would your response be? If you're thinking, man, that is just outrageous. How could God possibly do that to me? How could he impinge on my personal freedom? Now, I don't want you to go home thinking that's actually what God wants you to do. God is not anti-sex, actually. I think it's quite the opposite, in the illustration only. But if you think, how could God impinge on my personal freedom, then you're trusting in yourself and in sin to bring fulfilment, not in Jesus, not in God himself. But the other sin is the, is the sin of the second son, the other guy. And surprisingly, I think his sin is just as bad, if not worse, because at times it's, it's much more hidden. We've seen that his relationship is one of obligation. So look, sorry, verse 29, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. Where does he end up? He ends up outside of the rejoicing. In effect, outside of the family. And why? Because he feels like he deserves something for all his hard work. Again, Dad, you owe me something. I've done all this for you and now you owe me. One son's obligation took him far away. The other, it kept him close 
But both choices mean that they end up on the outside of the rejoicing if they're not careful. Both sons at their heart commit the same sin. They both worship themselves and not God. They both worship themselves and not God. The one who thinks that single sin will bring him freedom puts himself at the centre and says, I will be fulfilled without God. I don't need God to bring me fulfilment. I can do it. The other, the son, the, the, the other son, the legalist, does the same thing. They say that if I do right by God, then God will do right by me and I'll be fulfilled. It's a form of self-justification, a form of finding fulfilment away from God. And a good way to kind of work out if, if this is harbouring in your heart is to ask another question. I've asked this one before and I, I like it. If I said that tomorrow God was going to take away everything from you that you loved, how would you respond? Would you say, God, why are you doing this to me? I do all of this for you. I'm a good person. I, I come to church. I, I read my Bible. I pray. I even give money to church. You know, wh- what's your problem with me? Why are you doing it to me? If that is your response, then the question to ask is, who are you doing those things for? Are you doing them for God or are you doing them for yourself? Are you doing them so that God might be glorified or that you might receive something in return? Well, the last thing in our pattern, I've kind of mixed up our pattern, but the the search. So it's kind of our final thing. This will be my last point and hopefully be a bit short. But uh, there was was clearly a search in the first two stories, but there's no search in the third you know, what, are we, what are we to think of that? Often when patterns are established, it's not what's included, but often what's excluded uh, that we need to take note of. And we need to ask, why isn't there a search in this story? And in the context of this story and the setting, there really should have been a search. And it's what we should expect. Someone should have gone out and looked for the lost son. And the person that we should expect to go look out look out for the, for the lost son, is his brother, his older brother. It was his responsibility to go and search for his brother. Now, I have two older brothers, and brothers are funny things. If you've never had bro- brothers, you're probably better for it. My brothers usually use me as their pawn to get back at each other. I was the youngest. Uh, or they just put a blanket over my head and sit on it for a while until I screamed. But uh, it's funny watching Boaz and Judah, my two little boys, uh, at home. All they try and do is try and hurt each other as much as possible, the boys do. But if you put them in a situation where another kid hurts Judah, Boaz will step in straight away uh, and defend him as much as he can. That's what brothers do. No matter how much they don't get on, if one is in trouble, the other will always step in and try and help out. They have a funny bonded relationship. They can't be friends, but... And so help you if you get in their way, kind of across one of them, the other will just always stand up. Now, the reason why there is no search, I think, is because the search is happening just on the outside of the story. I think it's actually there in verses 1 and 2. Who's the one speaking the story? It's Jesus. I think Jesus is pointing to himself and saying, I am the true brother and you need to look to me. I am on my quest right now in searching. See, who is the one that comes and seeks and saves the lost? 
Who is the one that enters creation and finds those that seem infinitely distant from God? He's the one telling the story. And he's the ultimate brother. He's the one that loves his brothers enough that he would face the wrath of the Father to restore relationship for all. And so what does this all mean for us? Well, I think there's a kind of an obvious application. One is that we need to accept Jesus as our brother. Whether we think we're far away or close, we all need to repent and believe that Jesus is our true brother. brother. That he is the one sent into this world to save his people. Don't be like the older brother who is so close yet excludes himself. If you can hear the rejoicing, swallow your pride and come on in. Secondly, we all need to repent from our belief in, in either liberty or, or legalism. You know, we, we all think that those things will bring us freedom, but we all need to repent from them. And it's something that we need to keep doing and coming back to and being reminded of. It's not just a one-off thing. It always creeps into our hearts. And we need to keep asking, how am I not being fulfilled in Jesus? And keep asking the question. And kind of keep seeing that our sin points to a deeper, the deeper reasons in our life of why we're not being fulfilled in Jesus. Come back to Jesus and see that he is a good brother who does fulfil us. Now, it is only in God that we can find true freedom and true fulfilment. Well, lastly, we need, we need to be like our brother as well. I think part of the application is that we need to model Jesus. He comes and seeks and saves the lost. I think we need to do the same thing. I think it will look different for us. We don't need to go and die on a cross. Uh, but I think it will involve some sacrifice for us as well in order to win some. 